Before we start the program, I want to introduce you to an event that's coming up this August. The Loma Linda Institute of Worship is offering a worship leadership certificate to help leaders and pastors take their congregation's worship experience to the next level. This August 9-12 through 12 event will include presenters Randy Roberts, Adriana Pereira, Nicholas Zork, Wayne Buckner, Richard Hickam, and more, and provide the opportunity to perform on stage with Steve Green and the Heritage Singers. Come sing, pray, write new music, share testimonies and resources, and grow together with like-minded worship leaders from across the world. Go to LLIW.net to register. Happy Sabbath. I'm so glad that you've joined us. If you've joined us over the years in worship on Easter Sabbath at the Loma Linda University Church, you know that it's a very special Sabbath. It's a Sabbath of magnificent, elevating music, the reading of Scripture, praying together, listening to the Word, and participating in the emblems of our Lord's spilt blood and broken body. We can have some parts of that today, as you have already appreciated in the service, but we're not together as we usually are. Nevertheless, we are going to participate in the emblems of the Lord's Supper, His broken body and His spilled blood. We always have larger portions here at Easter time, including the grape juice bottles. I hope you have those at home today. If you do, I invite you to take them in your hands now and prepare to participate in the Lord's Supper. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we are indeed profoundly grateful for these symbols, physical symbols, simple as they are, of the magnificent sacrifice of Jesus. We pray, Lord, that as we participate, that your Spirit would bless not just the emblems and not just our physical bodies, but would bless us spiritually, deeply, and truly, that this might nourish our spiritual life and that we might grow in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Paul in 1 Corinthians, in the same letter we're going to look at today, tells his Corinthian friends, For the Lord Jesus, the same night when he was betrayed, took bread and broke it and passed it to them, saying, This is my body broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. Paul then continues on to say, After supper, he took the cup and gave it to them, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And the gospel writers tell us that Jesus gave them the cup and said, Drink from it, all of you. May God richly bless each and every one of us today and always because of the grace and the love of Jesus. Pilgrims who have a chance to visit the Holy Land 
and to go to the different sites important in the gospel and the biblical story, I'm going to guess would all express one disappointment. It was disappointing to me the first time I was there, and I still see it to this day when given the wonderful opportunity to return. When people come to that place, there's a sense of uncertainty and then a sense almost of shock. The place is Calvary and the garden tomb. We have clearly written in the memory pages of our minds what that scene ought to look like. It's outside the city gates. It's a hill. It's a place where crossroads met. Pilgrims coming and going could see it. It's a holy site, a sacred site, set apart, the only one like it in the world. And thus it is when pilgrims today come to that place and they find that they're actually inside of the old city of Jerusalem, not outside of the walls, not away from the avenues of life, but actually right, if you will, downtown in the old city. And not only that, but find that instead of coming to a hill, they enter a church, the church of the Holy Sepulchre. And they don't enter alone. They enter not with dozens, not with hundreds, but with thousands of others, crowded shoulder to shoulder, pressing their way in, each one intent on getting at least one glimpse of a piece of the exposed rock of that hill called Calvary. It's quite jarring. It's not that many paces, still inside, you're still indoors. If you make your way down away from Mount Calvary and then over to the right, you come to the tomb, except it too is not only inside of a church, it's kind of inside of a building inside of the church. And the pilgrims line up. Pretty soon the line snakes around that lobby area and becomes a circle as people wait long amounts of time for the opportunity to enter the precincts of that empty tomb. When we were there on one occasion, we slipped into that church the early morning hours, and for some reason at that time not many were there, and we were able to move into the tomb quite, quite quickly. I remember standing in that space, contemplating in my mind what had happened here, noticing that it indeed is empty. Walking away from that, pondering it, reflecting on it, raises a question. Not just for me, but I suspect to everyone who goes there. First of all, there's the jarring nature of disappointment that this isn't out in a simple garden, but inside of a church. And then comes the question, so what difference does this make? What difference does it make? For example, when I was in my mid-teen years, I can remember driving the highways of Texas as our family came and went from Mexico and Central America, and at times seeing a little sign on the roadside that said, Historical Landmark. On occasion, we might stop at one of those to see what it was a landmark of. It was often something that was fairly obscure, something I'd never heard of, 
something that made no difference in my life today, and yet something had happened there important in the history of the state of Texas. Is that the tomb, the empty tomb? It's just a historical landmark. Something somewhere sometime happened here, and you ought to know that it took place. Or does it make a difference? Did it make a difference then? Does it make a difference now? Today we're going to go to Paul's first letter to the church, to his friends in ancient Corinth. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Our friends, the Edwards family, have just read to us from 1 Corinthians 15, have read the early verses of that chapter. And if you were listening to the Edwards family read, you noticed a couple of things about what Paul is saying there. First of all, he's focused on the resurrection. Really, the death, the burial, and then the resurrection of Jesus, because that, he says, is at the heart of the gospel. So he's focused especially on the resurrection. And then secondly, you noticed, as the Edwards family read, that he's not content just to speak of it as something that happens. He's almost as though he's in a courtroom and he's calling witnesses. First, he calls Cephas, which is the Greek version of the Aramaic name of Peter calls Peter. He was the first witness. Then the twelve, they came as witnesses. He continues on to talk about 500 others who saw him, and then James who saw him. All of these witnesses lined up to attest to the reality of an empty tomb. Jesus rose. You noticed all of that. We're going to read the next part of 1 Corinthians 15. But to make sense of what Paul says next, I really need to read you a quote from a New Testament scholar, New Testament scholar Verlin Verbrug. It's a little bit of a quote, so you'll have to hang with me, but it helps truly set the stage for what Paul is going to say in the verses we read. So listen to Verbrug write. Paul has another major subject that he must discuss before he draws his letter to a close. He's almost at the end, in other words, of 1 Corinthians, but he has to address this one more matter. Back to Verbrugge's words. A doctrinal problem had developed with respect to the resurrection. Not the resurrection of Christ, per se, but the resurrection of believers. In this case, we don't need to speculate on the specific issue, since Paul quotes directly the saying of some among the Corinthians. Here's how he quotes them. There is no resurrection of the dead. <laughs> we do not know, writes Verbrugge, whether the people in question were denying the physical resurrection of Christ, but they were asserting that there would never be a time when human beings who had died would come back to life again and receive new bodies like Christ's glorious body. What would drive people in Corinth to hold such a teaching and to deny a cornerstone teaching of Paul and indeed of all the apostles? It seems most likely that these people were under the influence of some of the central tenets of Greek philosophical thinking. Traditional Greek thought divided the human being into body and soul, and the soul was, to be, was considered to be in the prison of the body. So we weren't a holistic whole in Greek thought. We were soul and body. Adventists ought to take particular interest in that. Back to Verbrugge's words. At the time of death, the soul escaped the body and was free from that prison to inhabit the spiritual realm. 
So why would anyone want to have a body again and imprison the soul a second time? Since Paul clearly taught the importance of the resurrection of the body, the only thing this small group in Corinth could do was to deny his teaching. And back to their words again, there is no resurrection of the body, they were saying. This is the same type of thinking that made some of the people in Athens sneer at Paul when he broached the resurrection of Jesus. The linchpin of Paul's response to this heresy is the doctrine of the humanity of Christ and his resurrection on the third day after his death and burial. In the first half of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul expounds the doctrine of Christ's resurrection on the third day as proof that dead human beings do, in fact, rise from the dead and that Christ is the firstfruits of this physical resurrection. In the second half of the chapter, he answers question about what a resurrection body might look like. So Paul is responding to his foes, to his opponents, who are saying there's no resurrection, no resurrection of the body. Paul says, you are absolutely wrong. And his proof of that comes in two words. Jesus rose. That's what Paul is going to say. Now let's read Paul's words. 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to read verses 12 to 19. Here's what Paul writes. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all others. Paul is absolutely clear on the conviction First, that Jesus rose, and second, that believers in Him will rise. He's combating the heresy at Corinth that denies the resurrection of believers. And here in this passage, he adds one point after another very quickly. He starts out by saying, if the resurrection of Jesus did not happen, then the heart of the gospel is torn out, because that is the heart of the gospel. That's number one. Secondly, he says, if it did not occur, then we apostles are, to quote one modern-day commentary, crass charlatans, because that's what we've been preaching. Thirdly, if that resurrection didn't occur, then your faith is in vain. It's futile. In fact, to use the meaning of the Greek word, it's empty, hollow vacuous. Then fourthly, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then your friends, your family members, your loved ones who have gone to sleep trusting in him are done, through, finished. There is nothing beyond the grave. And then finally, his fifth point in those words that we read is, if all of that is true, 
then our opponents are right, we are wrong, and we are to be pitied more than anyone else. So are we still asking what difference does it make? That's the question that we're tempted to ask, and understandably so. It's like standing at one of those historical landmarks and asking the question, what difference does it make? What relevance does it have to us now? Well, Paul is crystal clear on the relevance the resurrection of Jesus has. So, what if we pull all that into the 21st century, to today's day and time? If we talk about it in 2020, if we talk about it in the context of the COVID-19 virus that is afflicting so much of the planet, what if we ask that question about here and now, today, what difference does it make that Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago in a different world and a different place? What difference does it make? Well, if I were to try to draw together what Paul is saying here and then state it in ways that might have a more clear application to us today, I think I would point in the direction of three ways it makes a difference. First of all, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead makes a difference in how we face failure. It makes a difference in how we face failure. I want to read to you the words of a psychologist, licensed psychologist, author, columnist, Perry Buffington. Listen to what Buffington writes. Failures take on a life of their own because the brain remembers incomplete tasks or failures longer than it does any success or completed activity. It's technically referred to as the Zygernick effect. When a project or a thought is completed, the brain places it in a special memory. The brain no longer gives the project priority or active working status, and bits and pieces of the achieved situation begin to decay. In other words, if you finished something, completed it, succeeded at it, you put it away, so does the brain. You tend to forget it. Now back to Buffington's words. But failures have no closure. The brain continues to spin the memory, trying to come up with ways to fix the mess and move it from active to inactive status. You've lived that. I know I have. Those times when we have failed, those moments when catastrophe has struck, when we blew it, and we just replay them over and over and over again. Kind of like Vinko Bogotaj. Vinko Bogotaj was a Yugoslavian downhill ski flyer. I think you know what I'm talking about. Those ski flyers, I have long admired what they do. They crouch at the top of an extremely high straight ski run, and then they push off, and ski poles tucked under their armpits, they swish down that ski run all the way to a jump at the end, and then they soar several hundred feet through the air to a beautiful landing, ideally. Well, 1970, West Germany, 
West Germany, Obertsdorf, West Germany, the Ski Fly World Championships. It was Vinko Borgataj's turn. He pushed off, sliced down the run. Just before he got to the lip that would launch him into the air, he fell. Catastrophic fall. Launched off the edge of the lip of the run. He began to cartwheel, hitting his head, his body wiping out everything that was in his pathway until he finally came to an explosive snowy stop dozens and dozens of feet later. It was a horrible crash, the kind of thing that a ski flyer would immediately like to forget. But it was picked up by ABC's Wide World of Sports. Those of you who remember watching that show can remember that the opening footage of ABC's Wide, Worlds of, Wide World of Sports showed Bogotaj's crash every time the program played. Hundreds of times we in America watched his failure. He was stunned later to realize just how much his failure had given him fame. Well, we'd like to be known for something besides failure, wouldn't we? And yet, what happened to Bogotaj is what happens, says Buffington, in our minds. When we fail, we go back to it again and again and again, replaying it, trying to fix it, trying to repair it. So go back to that weekend. Put yourself in the feet of the first witness that Paul mentions here in 1 Corinthians 15, Cephas. We know him as Peter. You want to talk about failure? Lord, if every one of these other men denies you, I never will. I will go with you to death. Count on it. You can count on me. And then catastrophic failure. Something that Peter and himself would never be able to forget. Forgive himself for. In fact, others apparently also remembered it. There's a legend. I can't confirm this from Scripture. But there's a legend that says that in the coming days, weeks, months, and years, when Peter would appear around Jerusalem or other, other environs where people knew him, people would crow like a rooster and laugh. It was their way of replaying the catastrophic fall of Bogotaj. But here's the interesting reality. In the Gospel of John, there's a word that appears only two times. We talked about it here at Easter University Church some years ago. So for some of you, I'm reminding you of it. There's a word that appears two times in the Gospel of John. In fact, two times in all of Scripture. It's the word anthrakion. Anthrakion. John 18, 18. Uh, the definition, the, the translation that's given to it by different Bibles and scholars is charcoal fire. The anthrakion, the charcoal fire, was where Peter was trying to warm himself with others, blend into the crowd so he wouldn't be noticed. And then the questions came, aren't you one of his, aren't you, one, you're one of them. And Peter vehemently, with swearing, denied, I don't know the man. And then Luke tells us Jesus turned and looked at Peter. And the look broke Peter's heart. 
he fled and wept bitterly. Do you know how odors can bring something back to you very quickly? You smell baking biscuits and suddenly you're a child in your mother's kitchen. You smell a certain perfume, fragrance, and suddenly you're back at the wedding altar with your beloved. I can only imagine that after that experience, the flames of a charcoal fire must have choked Peter as the terrible stench of betrayal. But that word appears a second time in the Gospel of John. John 21. A morning by the Sea of Galilee, when having fished all night and caught nothing, the disciples see a stranger on the shore, throw again. They do. The net is so full of fishes they can't pull it in. John says, it's the Lord. Peter launches himself into the water, swims ashore to see Jesus, the risen, the resurrected Christ and finds that there Jesus has already prepared him breakfast on an anthracian charcoal fire. Peter sniffs that stench again, and it all comes back. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? I do, Lord. Do you love me? I do. Do you love me? Oh, Lord, you know everything. You know I love you. Then feed my sheep, care for my lambs, shepherd my flock. Christ is forgiving Peter, commissioning him again to work on his behalf. That's what the resurrected Jesus does. So you ask me, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make today? It makes a difference on how we face failure. Why? Because with the resurrected Jesus, there is grace. But secondly, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead makes a difference not only in how I face failure, but also in how we face death. In how we face death. These recent weeks and the coming week or two have been hard ones for all of us. They've been difficult ones in my own life and ministry. Over these recent days and the coming few days, I've had the sacred, and I do mean sacred privilege, of officiating at five, six, seven different funerals. Uh, the, the pain never lessens. The sorrow never becomes superficial. The different stories that drew us and will draw us together are each unique. One case, cancer declared victory. In another case, it was a gunshot. Another case, a heart attacked and the person died. Another case, the body just gave out. The stories are all unique. They're all different. But they are all drawn together by that sense of sorrow and pain that comes at the finality of death. 
I have a snapshot in the art gallery of my mind from when I was, I think I was thinking about it this week, I think I was about eight years old. Uh, my grandfather, my paternal grandfather, we called him Papa. Our grandmother, his wife, we called Nana. Papa had died. Uh, it was a tough time in our family. We were often in the mission field, but we happened to be home. I don't remember why. Was it furlough vacation? Don't remember. But we were home back in Texas. When the word came, it was camp meeting. We were in the meetings at the youth tent and junior high tent. and We were, we were needed. We went and discovered what had happened, heard the news. It's a very sad time. But that picture in my mind is of a moment in the funeral home. That moment comes when the service has ended, the family has gathered for one last time around the coffin of their deceased loved one. There we were as a family. They're talking, weeping, hugging. I have a distinct memory. I can see it right now of looking up at my dad and his mother, at Nana. Nana wiped her tears. She turned and spoke to Dad. Dad was much taller than she was, the tallest of the four children, almost 6'3". I remember her turning and looking up at Dad, and for some reason what she said or asked just engraved itself in my memory. She said, well, Bobby... I guess there's nothing we can do now, is there? An eight-year-old boy processed that, remembered it, mulled it over, trying to make sense of death. And while I would not have had this particular word at that time, the word that describes what I concluded was this one. Finality. Done. There's nothing we can do now, is there? So you ask me, what difference does that event about which Paul so pointedly and passionately writes here in 1 Corinthians 15, what difference does it make? Well, I'll tell you the difference it makes. It makes a difference in how we stand at every casket, at every graveside, and in every funeral. Because of two words, Jesus rose. That's the declaration. In fact, I want to read you again the words of Peter. Peter was a, was a key player that weekend, and for understandable reasons. I want to take you over to his first epistle. And I want you to listen to how he opens it. I'll just read one verse, but how he opens it. This is after he gives who's writing the letter and to whom it's addressed and so forth. But here are his next words. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If there was anybody that weekend who needed hope, it was Peter. 
And so when he sits down to either dictate or to write that epistle to his friends, to his church, he starts out immediately by saying, praise God. He gave us, he gave me a new birth into a living hope. How? By the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter could divide all of his life at the hinge that swung on two words, Jesus rose. He could face and we can face death differently ever after that because of two words, Jesus rose. So you ask what difference it makes? It makes a difference in how we face failure. There's hope. It makes a difference in how we face death. There's hope. Grace and hope. But I think it makes a difference in a third way. I think it makes a difference in the way we face life. There's power. In the way we face life, think of these early disciples, these early apostles. Here, when, when Paul is giving his witnesses to the resurrection of Jesus, he starts first of all with Peter, and then he goes to the twelve. That was that key circle, that cadre of people who were so deeply drawn into Jesus and so profoundly affected by his death. You think it made a difference for them? Well, notice how they begin that first day of the week after Jesus' crucifixion. They begin behind locked doors for fear of the religious leaders out there, for fear that they will be the next ones strung up on crosses. They are dominated not just by grief, but also by fear. Utter, stark terror. Huddled together can't face the future. That's who they were. And then, two words. Jesus rose. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how the power of hope and grace can change the future? The leadership guru John Maxwell tells a story about a little, somewhat helpless hamlet in Maine. The news came to that little hamlet in Maine that a new hydroelectric plant was to be built near where they lived. When they decided to build the hydroelectric plant, the authorities knew that they would have to build a dam, a large dam. And when they built the dam on the river that ran through that part of Maine, that water would slowly begin to rise. And by the time it rose to the height of the dam and provided the kind of power and force that could run the hydroelectric plant and provide electricity, that little hamlet in which they lived would be totally inundated. Dozens or even hundreds of feet of water would swallow it up. And so they were given months, many months notice as to what was coming. They were going to be taken care of financially, but they would need to move. They would need to find new places to set up their homes and live and work. A curious thing happened after that, says Maxwell, to that little town in Maine. People just let things go. They stopped mowing their lawns. They stopped fixing their fences. 
They stopped painting their houses. They stopped cleaning up debris, sweeping the streets. They just stopped. It wasn't too many weeks, certainly after two or three months, that the entire town looked like a ramshackled, abandoned ghost city. One of the residents, Maxwell says, commented on it by saying, when you have no hope for the future, there's no power for the present. Doesn't matter. Makes no difference. We have no future. So you ask me, what difference does the resurrection of Jesus make to me here now today? What difference does it make to those of us who are faced with COVID-19, with those of us who have questions about the economy, about health care, and in some cases about our very survival? What difference does it make? Well, I'll tell you what difference it makes. The resurrection of Jesus makes a difference in how I face life. Because there's power to live. Power to live because this is not all there is. There is something beyond. There is something better. There's a kingdom of God to come. And he calls us into profound, life-changing relationship with himself. That we might make a difference in the here and now. And live to make a difference in the hereafter. The resurrection of Jesus makes a difference in how I face life because the resurrection of Jesus gives me, gives you power to live life. So if you ever go to Jerusalem, if you ever walk the Via Dolorosa, carrying in your mind the picture of Calvary and the tomb, you may be disappointed. It's in a church. Thousands of pilgrims crowded close to see it. There might be a temptation to just walk away and say, it's just a landmark. Makes no difference. I would really beg to differ with that. In fact, I want to read to you the words of Preacher and writer, psychologist and pastor John Ortberg. These words come from Easter of 2009. If you remember back, 2009 was rough. The crash of 2008 and all that followed it. People were losing their homes. The mortgage crisis was in full swing. The roller coaster nature of Wall Street was making many sick at their stomachs, uncertainty in the future. In fact, come to think of it, 2009 sounds suspiciously like 2020. Though Ortberg wrote and spoke these words in 2009, I think they were written for today, Easter of 2020. Here's what he said I cannot think of an Easter in recent memory where there was a bigger need for hope, for something that would breathe life into the human spirit. A year ago, so many people felt like they were on pretty solid ground. Now they find themselves in circumstances they would never have predicted. Sound familiar? A lot of people are feeling anxious. They have pressures they didn't have before. 
They regret decisions they've made over this last year. They wonder where things will stand a year from now. Nobody ever wants a season of hard times to come. But when they do come, they have a way of making you ask, what am I really counting on? Am I building my life on a foundation that's solid enough that circumstances beyond my control cannot take it away? That's why I've been looking forward to Easter, said Ortberg. A time when we gather to remember the only hope capable of sustaining a human life through everything. People have not gathered for the past 2,000 years to say, the stock market has risen. It has risen indeed. They have not gathered to say, the dollar has risen. It has risen indeed. Or the, un- or the employment rate has risen. Or the gross domestic product has risen. Or General Motors has risen. Or the value of your 401k has risen. No. Here's the one hope that has held up human beings across every continent and culture for two millennia. In difficult times of poverty, disease, pain, hardship, and death itself, here is what has held us. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. And that, my friends, makes all the difference.